Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kamran Mushraf, PhD candidate in political science at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm also a fellow in the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which is part of the Ralph Bunch Center for International Studies, and is a co-sponsor of this podcast. Today we're talking to Professor Aicha Chibukchu about her new book, for the Love of Humanity, the World Tribunal on Iraq, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Aicha Chubukchu is Associate Professor in Human Rights at the London School of Economics and Co-Director of LSE Human Rights, a transdisciplinary center of excellence for international academic research, teaching, and critical scholarship on human rights. Aicha Chubukchu, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you, Kamran. It's a pleasure to be your guest today. Thanks so much. Um, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and sort of your academic history and background. Uh, Yes, I did my undergraduate studies in the Department of Government of Cornell University. I studied political theory and worked closely with Professor Susan Buck-Morse. This was in the late 1990s. And then I decided to uh, study anthropology for my PhD and went to Columbia University's uh, Department of Anthropology, uh, where I worked with Professor Parthor Chatterjee on uh, what I thought would be uh, the alter globalization movement, which was in full force at the time. Uh, in the early 2000s, but uh, September 11 happened and I changed my dissertation subject to the global anti-war movement and worked on that for several years. I see. And um, could you tell us then a little bit about how, uh, I suppose you've already alluded to it a little bit, September 11th, but how the specific project uh, of the book came to be? Uh, yes, I had started my uh, PhD uh, in the aftermath of the global protests in Seattle against the World Trade Organization, and I very much felt a part of that movement and knew already that I wanted to do theoretical work related to global social movements. And I thought the discipline of anthropology would give me the tools to do that. Uh, once September 11 happened, uh, that movement transformed into a global anti-war movement. And so in the summer of 2003, I was doing preliminary fieldwork in Istanbul. And it was during this preliminary fieldwork uh, about the global anti-war movement that I got invited as an activist, actually 
who participate in a global civil society tribunal that was being planned at the time. And I very much got interested in this idea, although to begin with, I was a bit skeptical. The idea was that various um, members of the global anti-war movement, local groups, as well as individuals, who were inspired by the Russell Tribunal of 1967, would come together. This was right after the beginning of the war in Iraq. And they had decided to form a global tribunal uh, to try the U.S. and U.K. and other coalition forces for war crimes in Iraq. So I got invited as an activist to help build the New York City leg of this tribunal. The idea was to constitute a global network of tribunal sessions that would happen all around the world and culminate with a final session in Istanbul. So uh, once invited as an activist, I had some hesitations because my perspective on... uh, international law and law as such was rather critical. I was very influenced by Foucault and I thought that perhaps this endeavor would uh, reinforce the myths of international law about itself. So I took a couple of months to think about it and finally decided that I didn't want to be on the sidelines. So I contacted my friends who had invited me in Istanbul and I said, I will actually join this project and with your permission, I would also like to join it as an ethnographer who wishes to document the global constitution of this tribunal around the world. So that's how I got uh, involved in the World Tribunal on Iraq, it was later called. And uh, so this book that I just published, For the Love of Humanity, is based on my uh, doctoral fieldwork with this global network of activists who created this tribunal. I see. Thank you. Uh, and you mentioned uh, ethnography. And uh, to me, one of, the most, one of the most fascinating things about the book is its combination of ethnography with political theory. Yeah. Uh, and I was just fascinated by uh, your use of this method. And I'd like, if you, if you don't mind, to speak for a few minutes uh, about... Uh, your use of this method, uh, what were its advantages, uh, the challenges it posed? Uh, why did this story need to be told in that way? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I say that my method uh, combines ethnography with closed readings in political theory. Uh, it would be fair to say, I think, that that method emerged organically from my subject matter. It emerged from the way uh, the activists, the global network of activists I worked with, were talking about their task at hand. They were talking about legitimacy. They were talking about legality. They were talking about authority, rights, representation. So my subject matter was very much... um, infused with political theory. Uh, So it emerged organically from my uh, involvement with the World Tribunal on Iraq as an ethnographer and as an activist. 
some of the advantages of uh, using this combination of ethnography and political theory was that uh, I would say it allowed me to think about the concepts being used in a sustained fashion. Uh, but I wouldn't want to say that I superimposed the concepts of legality, uh, let's say, or legitimacy on the discussions that were happening. As I said, they they were um, political concepts that were already in use and being rethought in what I thought were very creative ways by these net, this network of activists. Right. Something that's very striking is that you describe the World Tribunal on Iraq as an example of uh, political theory and political philosophy. Uh, you read their practice as political theory versus, for example, um, applying political theory or reading or simply reading their practice through the lens of uh, political theory. That's right. That's a, a fair characterization. Um, I do treat the activists I worked with as political theorists in their own right. And some of them were actually professionally. This was a group of international lawyers, academics, translators, publishers, uh, students. Uh, many academics were involved in this. But it wasn't only the academics academics as such, professional uh, legal theorists or political theorists, the praxis of the WTI, I call it political philosophy in action. That's a great phrase. Um, speaking of other really good phrases in the book, uh, I wanted to ask you about this phrase that you coined, the instrumentalization thesis. Oh, yes. Because I find it very useful, and I, I really like the way you frame it. Uh, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what this what what uh, this concept you you came up with is about, and how it relates to um, the sort of perspective we take on human rights? Yes, um, I had to come up with a concept to describe uh, the reasons why. I was feeling increasingly frustrated with a certain uh, effort to understand, to speak concretely, the paradox that the war on Iraq was at once opposed and proposed in the name of universal human rights. In response to this paradox, many political theorists and activists too at the time said, well, George W. Bush used or instrumentalized human rights discourse to occupy Iraq. And uh, many sophisticated theorists said this was a hollow, cynical appropriation of human rights discourse emptied of all substantive content. And I got uh, frustrated with this line of, thinking or rather attempt to understand our predicament because I thought it left many questions unanswered. So I call this thesis the instrumentalization thesis of human rights, which leaves untouched 
the content of human rights, let's say, is substance and only problematizes its so-called misuses. And I felt that this way of thinking prevented us from asking certain type of questions. For example, what is it about universal human rights that blends itself particularly well to imperial projects? What explains the particular vitality of the discourse and imaginary of human rights in justifying uh, imperial practices such as the occupation of Iraq in the name of liberating um, an oppressed population, they said, from a dictatorship. So it was really to name uh, what I was up against and trying to argue against that I coined this term. Thank you. That's uh, really great. Uh, And speaking of the uh, way law was sort of characterized uh, in the sort of wider discourse of human rights about the war in Iraq and and how the tribunal itself thought about law, another uh, sort of uh, concept or distinction you introduced, which I found useful or, or interesting, was you talk about how people in the tribunal had some had what you call a legalist perspective and others had a political perspective. Could you just sort of uh, describe uh, what those were? Yes. The World Tribunal on Iraq activists were dispersed all around the world and they were rather dispersed ideologically and theoretically too. I mean, there was great diversity among them. And in the way these activists... As I said, some of them uh, very well-known scholars uh, approach the problem of law, international law, and global politics. So um, I have one chapter, as you know, on the constituting meeting of the World Tribunal on Iraq, where I try to make sense of the conflicting positions on the table For example, over the question of the sources of this global civil society's own legitimacy. And when this question was being debated, uh, you will, I suppose, agree with me that constitutional meetings are fertile ground to raise philosophical questions and what remains often implicit becomes explicit at such meetings. And the particular meeting I wrote about lasted for three full days and nights uh, in Istanbul. It took place in 2003. So the legalist perspective and the political perspective tried to articulate two conflicting, I mean, they didn't try to be conflictual, but what ended up happening was the clash of two different visions, I say, of uh, global peace and justice. The legalist perspective thought that the World Tribunal on Iraq as an initiative of global civil society could appropriate the already existing legitimacy of international law for itself. So um, it said, for example, if we follow the procedures of international law as closely as possible, in other words, if we, the more we resemble an official court of law, the more legitimate we will be. 
uh, I note that a certain presumption in such a perspective was taking for granted the legitimacy of international law itself uh, as a means for establishing global peace and justice. Other activists were more critical of international law uh, and they thought of it as complicit in the occupation of Iraq to the extent that institutions of international law failed at best or else facilitated the occupation of Iraq. So that was one aspect of what I call the political perspective, um, which tried to articulate different sources of legitimacy for this global civil society tribunal's uh, uh, standing in the world, to put it differently, legitimate standing in the world. So the political perspective uh, was divided into two camps itself. Some activists thought were part of global civil society and were entitled as any human being part of global society to say we are constituting a tribunal and we will do it fairly and we have every right to do so based on universal principles of uh, human rights. Uh, and another perspective said, well, global civil society of uh, is also full of people who oppose this war. So we cannot constitute a global civil society under the assumption that humanity as such was against the war. Uh, and the example of the American nation was given uh, because a significant portion of American citizens actually supported the occupation of Iraq. So uh, they articulated uh, the global anti-war movement, which had become spectacularly manifest on February 15, 2003, for example, which was the largest protest in human history uh, that, that had mobilized before the war actually had begun. I guess uh, to make sense of what otherwise sounds like a surrealistic exercise almost to think, who are these people gathered together in Istanbul from all around the world who are now declaring themselves capable, able, and legitimate in founding a tribunal on behalf of humanity? The only way it would make sense is to think about these global protests that had happened right before the war had begun. So I try to convey in the book the sense of empowerment that came with those protests. Uh, you may or may not know the New York Times had declared the next day there are two superpowers in the world uh, today, the United States and uh, global civil society. Um, that became take, that took to the streets on this day. So, with this sense of empowerment, especially the political perspective itself, could articulate what I call in the book a partisan legitimacy that would be specific to the global anti-war movement. So, in other words, there would be no pretension 
to uh, putting the US and UK on trial as a neutral institution of international law, as the legalist perspective would wish, uh, there would be no pretension that the tribunal being constituted then would be nonpartisan. On the contrary, uh, the political perspective argued, we have to show our partisanship. We have to be open about the fact that this is an anti-war movement. Uh, so that is what I try to theorize or conceptualize as partisan legitimacy. That's fantastic. Thank you. You also have some very interesting comments in the book about uh, legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis the Iraqi people themselves. Uh, yes. How, how their presence or absence was sort of thought about and argued about. Could you say something about that? Yes. Uh, in the book, I say at this constituting meeting over three days, the, uh, this uh, idea of a global civil society tribunal, interestingly, was discussed passionately qua ideas of the world, ideas of a tribunal, but not surprisingly that of Iraq. And I try to understand why is it that uh, the activists gathered to found the World Tribunal on Iraq were not so concerned about their legitimacy in the eyes of those from Iraq. Uh, so this caused some uh, theoretical uh, as well as political difficulties for me, which I... This fact is what I realized retrospectively, uh, its significance. And I try to think about it or make sense of it, understand it through a transition from affects of internationalism, internationalist solidarity towards cosmopolitan solidarity. One of my... Um, uh, sort of concerns in this book to understand is to understand the complicity between certain versions of cosmopolitanism, and I use that word carefully, not internationalism, but cosmopolitanism, the complicity between that and uh, including the project of universal human rights and empire and empire building. So, uh, to my surprise, I realized that the self offended by the war in Iraq, at least for the World Tribunal on Iraq activists that I was working with, was not a national self that was in solidarity with another nation, let's say Iraqis, but it was a human self that was in solidarity uh, with other humans, which in a way erased the specificity of the Iraqis in question. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I really like your sort of distinction between internationalist and cosmopolitan solidarity. Um, when you when you talk about internationalist solidarity, for me personally, I think of sort of other anti-imperial projects and 
political theories, going back to, I mean, going back to the original Russell Tribunal, which sort of happened in a context of uh, a global anti-imperialist sort of thinking and, and upsurge, uh, sort of ideas rooted in Marxism and kind of the that wave of anti-colonialism. Uh, and I was curious uh, to know if you sort of saw the presence of, you know, like thinkers. Uh, I'm thinking of like Sartre, Fanon, uh, and 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 that sort of moment, uh, uh, and you know, the moment when, as you say, national projects against imperialism like Vietnam were were sort of on the agenda. Uh, to what extent did you did you find echoes? Of that moment here, or 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 were they not present? And if not, why? Well, they were present. Perhaps I should note that uh, World Tribunal on Iraq activists uh, came from different generations. Uh, there were at least three different generations active in this moment, and it was very interesting and fruitful to witness these different generations of activists come together and try to agree on a common project, on a common vision. And for me as an ethnographer, this was extremely rich and fertile ground to ask, what are the differences between internationalist imaginaries, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, let's say, of the 60s at the time that the Russell Tribunal was um, in effect. It was founded in 1957 and the anti-war movements of that time. And here we are in the 21st century and what has changed and what has remained the same. Uh, it would be difficult to speak for the World Tribunal on Iraq as such, uh, because it was so very diverse. Um, but what I could observe was a tendency to adopt a more cosmopolitan vision rather than an internationalist vision. The language of human rights and international law was, especially human rights, was very much pronounced in a way that wasn't, for example, for the Russell Tribunal. Um, I try to go into this uh, in the book in, fur you know, in further detail, but the cosmopolitan vision, to the extent that it was hegemonic within the network of WTI activists, envisioned a global civil society of individuals, first and foremost. And in one of the chapters, I think I call this the individualist stance. So this kind of political imaginary thought of the activists themselves as human beings, part of a global society, acting in no representational capacity, but as themselves. And so the constitutional imagination took of these activists took the global individual as its starting point, which is a very different way of imagining who one was in the anti-war movement against the, against the Vietnam War, I imagine, uh, at the time that Jean-Paul Sartre and 
uh, and uh, Bertrand Russell were organizing the Russell Tribunal on Vietnam. I see. That's really, really interesting. Um, and speaking of this sort of uh, subject of civil society, mm -hmm. uh, which you talk about in the book sometimes as this subject is humanity itself. Uh, yes. Chapter four is titled Humanity Must Be Defended. In quotation marks, yes. Yes, very much in, square, in scare quotes. Yeah. I, I found this very interesting and provocative. Um, obviously, it brings to mind for me, um, I, I assume this is intentional, the Foucault's uh, collection of lectures, Society Must Be Defended. Yes. Um, and I wonder if, and, and, and in, the, in the context that Foucault's talking about, he, he talks about uh, you know, the role of, of war uh, in, in, in defending society. Um, I, I, so I, I was hoping you could unpack this phrase a little bit, uh, what the, what the scare quotes mean to you. Um, and to what extent was this concept of humanity itself kind of explored or unpacked in the praxis of the tribunal? Uh, perhaps humanity, and this is telling, I think, was one of the least unpacked and most taken for granted concepts in the praxis of the World Tribunal on Iraq. The whole effort was based on the idea of humanity. But see, I got almost obsessed with the fact that the uh, U.S. administration at the same time was mobilizing ideas of humanity and human rights to justify the occupation of Iraq in terms of liberating an oppressed population uh, from a dictatorship. Um, so its humanity for me is a double-edged sword, and that's one of the reasons why it's in scare quotes, the phrase humanity must be defended. What I try to do in, this, in that chapter is to uh, read deconstructively some of the legal and political theorists that participated in the World Tribunal on Iraq, in particular in a session in Brussels, and actually engaged in this very interesting cross-examination during the tribunal on the subject of Habermas, out of all people, all theorists, Habermas kept repeatedly appearing at the Brussels session of the World Tribunal on Iraq and, again, emerging organically from what I was studying as an ethnographer, I decided to take on Habermas and study very closely his uh, hesitation to support the war in Iraq in the context of his endorsement of NATO's 1999 mission in Kosovo, uh, there in an article called Humanity and Bestiality, Habermas uh, comes forcefully on the side of NATO and justifies that intervention along with uh, other uh, actually groups of scholars including Richard Falk, who was very much involved in the World Tribunal on Iraq processes, all these uh, cosmopolitan scholars and theorists who had supported 
humanitarian interventions in the late 1990s. And now the occupation of Iraq presented a difficult case to the extent that they had already made an argument that illegal wars could be legitimate wars if they were fought in the name of humanity. So I uh, offer a close reading of what I argue to be the proper context for understanding properly cosmopolitan participation in the anti-war movement against the occupation of Iraq in a context where a few years earlier, the same theorists, uh, in particular Habermas, had supported NATO's humanitarian intervention. So his task was to articulate with clarity the conceptual difference between the occupation of Iraq as a cosmopolitan undertaking, which he takes seriously, and I do take that uh, possibility seriously, uh, on the one hand, and the cosmopolitan undertaking, which was NATO's intervention in Kosovo. I see. Uh, that is really fascinating and extremely uh, relevant, I think, to things that are going on uh, in the world today. Um, and as well, uh, the, the form of the tribunal itself, I think, is very relevant. Um, you say some very interesting things about uh, the tribunal as an experiment uh, in transnational democratic politics, particularly its use of a horizontal network uh, structure. Um, you say um, at the very end of the book, you say that its network form of organization provided a partial means for resolving differences in temperament and judgment. Could you just say a little bit about um, this sort of the network form and uh, what were the what were the partial means and what differences were people trying to resolve in this network form? Yes. Well, one of the differences, the most striking differences between the Russell Tribunal on Vietnam and the World Tribunal on Iraq was also with respect to their organizational forms. The World Tribunal on Iraq was consciously and proudly a non-hierarchical horizontal organization with no center for decision making. So imagine hundreds of activists, if not more, uh, coming together and trying to not only imagine, but practically constitute a tribunal on Iraq net in a network fashion across two long years uh, with practically no budget and having to arrive at decisions all the time without a decision-making center, with no authority as the final arbiter uh, among different conflicting positions. So this was the challenge. And the World Tribunal on Iraq was being organized from 2003 to 2005. This was before the time of social media. Everything was done over email and occasional international coordination meetings. The method of decision-making that the tribunal activists used was more or less consensus. So 
So I have a chapter or intermezzo, I call it, called Can the Network Speak? where I try to address some of the organizational difficulties and advantages of using horizontal networks for uh, experimenting with such a project of uh, global democracy. Um, A term, an interesting term that comes up in in that chapter is the term network discipline. Yes. Could you say, could you say a little bit about that? Uh, network discipline uh, emerged in the way uh, I could. Uh, I mean, I couldn't pinpoint the exact time and place it emerged, but rather what I I'm trying to describe there is a tendency to uh, control the kind of freedom that was granted to organizational nodes of the network uh, to begin with. So, um, I mean, I would have to chart it out for you. The World Tribunal on Iraq was organized through city-based autonomous uh, committees. So this constituted less of a problem before the final session in Istanbul happened. But once uh, it was time to dissolve the um, network and once the task of the tribunal was approaching its completion after the final session of the tribunal, affected bonds, in other words, once affected bonds among the network participants began to weaken, a tendency towards network discipline emerged, which put into question the autonomy of national, I mean, that wouldn't be the correct term, actually, city-based organizing committees. So uh, the network form does not come without its problems. And I try to explore what some of these problems are. For example, I develop another concept called uh, the negative signature. What happens when uh, a horizontal network tries to reach decisions through consensus? And I think you can see this in other networked organizations as well. What I try to conceptualize there is the power a no has over a yes in the network form of organization. I say uh, uh, saying no always has more power over saying yes in response to any question placed on the table when it comes to making a decision. So a negative signature is what, oh, how I try to conceptualize it, basically. I see. Uh, and I think you do a really great job of showing these both strengths and weaknesses of the kind of horizontal network form, which, as you say, uh, is is more and more uh, prevalent in political practice in, in the world today. Yes, uh, and I think it will proliferate in the future. So it's really, really important to understand this dynamic. I I, I absolutely agree. Um, and on that note, you you use a, a phrase 
at one point, I think maybe more than once, uh, global constituent power. Yeah. And this, this again, I find very provocative because there is, uh, you know, a discourse in political theory uh, about constituent power and whether it's possible to have a constituent power at the global level. Yeah. And a lot of it revolves around, uh, can we find a demos? Where is the demos? Um, and so for you to bring up this phrase in the context of the tribunal, I think, uh, uh, g signals, gestures at potential, perhaps, uh, intervention into those debates as well. Uh, could, you say, could you say a little bit about that? Yes, actually, I had in mind not only political theorists, but also global legal scholars when I was writing uh, a chapter called Constituting Multitude. And I also had scholars such as uh, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri. So often I'm in explicit conversation with them. How do we think of a global polis? And if we can, then who, who is the constituent power uh, that we can see uh, that can legitimately act globally? And as I said, this question was not necessarily or not only a theoretical problem, but it was a practical problem for World Tribunal on Iraq activists as they were coming together to constitute themselves as a world tribunal on Iraq. So the question of who is the global constituent subject was emerging as a concrete problem for the activists themselves. So I uh, simply tease out the conflicts they had as they were imagining themselves as a global constituent power. And they run across, as I try to show, uh, they run into the conceptual problems of representation, of authority, of legitimacy, and even legality that uh, these political and legal theorists themselves are grappling with. I see. Thank you. Um, I also wonder if you could say, some, say something about the afterlife of the tribunal. Um, there, I mean, there's this gap between, you know, the, the, the existence of the tribunal and the book. And it, I think that, that, that gap in time is very interesting because it's almost as if uh, the tribunal, I, I don't know what you'll think of this, but I almost feel like it was a little bit ahead of its time in the okay. sense that the horizontal network form of organizing, the concern, the, the transnational form of organizing, these are, I, I would think, uh, very much, uh, very forcefully on the agenda today, maybe in a way that's more clear now than it was back during behind the actual tribunal itself. Yes. Um, so, yeah, could you say something about that? Well, I think partly, uh, yes, the World Tribunal on Iraq was ahead of its time, thanks to, I think, in part, to the parties, two things. One was this uh, cross-generational constitution. So there was the generation who had participated physically or politically or, you know, at heart, let's say, in the altered globalization movement. 
uh, of the late 1990s and had adopted its preference, in fact, its insistence on non-hierarchical forms of organization and its preference for networks. And the other uh, factor, I think, there is also the participation of an older generation who was active in the late 60s, who had settled accounts with more hierarchical, let's say, Leninist forms of organization, and who were open to experimenting with new forms. Uh, I'm not saying this. Uh, sort of cross-fertilization between these generations of activists happens um, smoothly. On the contrary, as I try to demonstrate, often organizational debates uh, could, could, could almost break the tribunal, which it did in the end, actually. Uh, so it was ahead of its time, but also following um, the leadership of a new wave of movements that had been basically done with Leninist forms of organization and were ready for something new. I see. Uh, thank you. Uh, Aicha, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, My pleasure. One last question I have for you is, what are you working on now? And how do you think the experience of of writing this book could potentially inform future projects? Uh, yes. Well, after, because of the timeline of academic publishing, once I was done with the book, I actually wrote an article which was published in the London Review of International Law recently called Thinking Against Humanity, where I, uh, every frustration I had accumulated theoretically against the concept of humanity, I had a chance to <laughs> sort of bring together. I have, uh, at the moment, I am aware that one of the things I would like to work on that I may have neglected in the past is the question of political violence. I have always been dealing with the violence in my work, but indirectly, and now I want to confront the question through probably um, a confrontation with Hannah Arendt and a settling of accounts on that question. So that's what's next on the horizon. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, we'll be looking forward to it. Uh, thank thank you. you so much. Uh, this has been Aicha Chubukchu on her new book, for the Love of Humanity, The World Tribunal on Iraq, a fantastic book and a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.